certainly is another blessing that we've been given to assemble at this hour on this Sunday afternoon, and we're thankful that God has looked upon us with favor, seen fit to permit us an opportunity to look again at one of the interesting scenes found within the pages of the Old Testament. May I encourage you to be turning to the book of Esther, at least for the next few moments, and we'll at least use that for the first part of our lesson this evening. In so doing, we, as I mentioned this morning, will at least continue somewhat interestingly from the nature of our discussion at that time. We use the morning lesson today to cast a spotlight on the character and times of Joseph. And we found in it that, in fact, the God of heaven on many occasions had orchestrated the events of his life in such a way to bring about the the salvation of the people. I hope that you perhaps have reflected on the following truth of all those things that we noted this morning. Only two of them were miraculous. That, of course, was when he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh and when he interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker. All the other events were just natural affairs, daily activities, but yet God moved them in a way to where the events led to the accomplishment of His will. As I mentioned at that time, Other examples exist in the Bible, and this evening we're going to at least use the lion's share of our time to reflect on the book of Esther. Now that book has ten chapters, and we certainly won't read the entirety of it, but I would ask that you reflect upon the movement throughout that book, and as we do that, I think we again shall see some interesting observations. You'll note near the bottom of that slide that as we look at both Esther on the one hand and later on tonight Saul as well, our goal is going to be to see the handiwork of God in that book. Now, there's one element of this that's more challenging than this morning's lesson. Joseph identically declared that God has done this, but there is no single statement in Esther to that effect because, oddly enough, the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther. To my knowledge, it's the only Old Testament book in which the name of God does not occur. Now, that by itself, of course, leads us to appreciate that just because His name isn't there, we will easily see the movement of matters and the orchestration of events because God's going to do it, even though His name is not expressly written in the book. Let's begin our study then by noting this. In this morning's lesson, God saved the people of Israel in the times of Joseph, and you might remember it was famine that was such a troubling matter then. And in fact, ultimately, God elevated Joseph in Egypt, and he, of course, provided the means of saving the people from hunger. Jacob and the entirety of the family were brought to Egypt, and there they stayed in the land of Goshen. This evening, in some sense, the peril facing God's people was even greater. We're going to find in just a few moments that all of them were going to be exterminated if Haman's plan were to come to fruition. Every single Jew on earth... And if that plan, of course, had come to fruition, the Lord couldn't have come because it was prophesied He would come through the seed of Abraham, Genesis 18.25. It was promised, in fact, that He would be a descendant of David, but if all of David's descendants were slain, obviously there's a serious issue before us. You'll notice on that slide that the peril then that we're about to read about is one that God did save His people, but how did He do it? What was the sequence of events 
that led to the salvation of His people? And can we see the providence of God in the movement through those events? The bottom of that slide lists a few names that we will need to be familiar with. The first is the Persian king at this time was a man the King James Version calls Ahasuerus. Now, those who perhaps remember your studies in history in school may remember that another Persian king, at least the name typically used, was Xerxes. As far as we're able to tell, Ahasuerus and Xerxes are one and the same. So if that's the name you remember from school, just keep in mind that probably is this person. But one more thing you might notice, and you'll notice this at the bottom of that slide. As we start our journey, it will end, it will begin in a very interesting way. In Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we find that the king, Ahasuerus, had specifically elevated a man named Haman to a very high position in the kingdom. In fact, you and I likely today would call him the prime minister. Haman was that influential, and he occupied that high position. So high regard did the king have for him that in fact he gave orders to everybody that when you see Haman, you bow before him and you reverence him. Now clearly the king thought a lot of him and apparently was so enamored with him that he gave that great an order in regard to the way everybody was to deal with Haman. We quickly learn, however, that Mordecai did not bow before Haman and in fact he did not show him reverence. We soon discover that Mordecai was a Jew, and therefore maybe he was motivated by his understanding that in the Ten Commandments you must not worship anybody but God. The first two of the Ten Commandments had read exactly that way. And maybe in light of that, Haman was not going to offer unto this man named Haman, or Mordecai was not going to offer to Haman, that kind of reverence. At any rate, we soon discover... Finally, word of Mordecai's activity was brought to Haman. He apparently was unaware of it. You can well imagine someone saying, Don't you realize that guy's not bowing before you? He does not show you the reverence. And Haman became furious. Now, you and I at this point might say that it wouldn't have been outside the realm of understanding to think about an ungodly person taking vengeance on a single person for acting like that. But Haman didn't look at it this way. Rather than getting rid of Mordecai and punishing him, he wanted to get rid of every Jew on earth. He wanted to exterminate the race. And therefore, he concocted a plan. That plan is embodied on the top of this next slide. Haman went before the king the one who had elevated him so highly. And he made the following statements, King, do you realize that in your empire there is a people who do not honor your laws? They are rather lawless people, and I suggest we get rid of them. You may notice that Haman did not call who they were. He just said they were a lawless people. And the king gave Haman his ring and said, Make it so. At that point in time, Haman began to put the the finishing touches on the plan, as you can see written on that slide. Exactly 11 months from the day, every single Jew was to be killed. Every one of them. And it was going to be by decree of the king that it would happen. 
Because in that day and time, the Persian king was such that there was an interesting law. Once you gave an order, once you gave a law, it could not be repealed, and it could not be changed, and it could not be rescinded. So once the law was in fact uttered, that was it. And don't you know that Haman was a bit excited because once he put the king's signet ring of approval on it, it could no longer be changed. And not only could he get rid of Mordecai, he could get rid of every other Jew as well. At this point, things look very good for Haman. It looks very bleak for God's people. As you proceed to look through the book, the next thing you'll notice is the word was sent out all across the empire that this was to happen. The Persian Empire was massive, 127 provinces. It stretched to what we would call modern-day China. And every one of them was such that every single Jew on the 13th day of the 12th month was to be slain. And the government gave its approval to do it. You can imagine that when Mordecai learned about the decree, he began to mourn, he rent his clothes... And he, of course, lived in the, in, in the very capital city. At this time, Esther was not even aware of it. Mordecai shared with her the nature of this decree. Don't you realize you're a Jew as well, and you are not going to be spared? A few moments ago, it was read for us in our hearing from Esther chapter 4. Mordecai basically said to her, you need to go before the king and petition on behalf of our people. Esther was quick to offer this thought. The Persians also had another very interesting law. When the king was sitting upon his throne, nobody uninvited could come before him without being under threat of death. So in other words, if you appeared before the king when he had not invited you, they could kill you on the spot. Esther was quick to remind Mordecai, the king hasn't invited me to come. I'll be taking my life into my hands if I go into him to petition. But she quickly made this statement. Have all the Jews fast three days and three nights. I will go in. You may pause for a moment and think about what she might have looked like. If you were to eat nothing for three days and three nights, wouldn't your appearance perhaps look less than rosy? Wouldn't your appearance maybe look less than the stellar position it might otherwise take? Nonetheless, for three days and nights, she fasted as well as her maidens and all the Jews, and then she went in, and can you imagine the racing of her heart as she appeared, will he invite me or not? Interestingly enough, he dipped out the golden scepter to her. She had an audience with the king, and so she went before the king, and he made a rather amazing statement. Esther, what is your petition? I will give it up until half the kingdom. Now at this point, you and I might say, well, this is the perfect opportunity. She can now ask why my people are about to be destroyed. But she didn't ask it then. Keep in mind the wisdom perhaps in that and what moved her with that kind of an offer from the king to delay that request until later. Rather, she requested this. My request is for you and Haman to come and enjoy a banquet with me. 
Well, you can imagine how excited Haman was. He loved the notoriety of people. Remember, he loved everybody bowing before him. He was excited. And sure enough, later that day, it would seem, they enjoyed a banquet with the queen. If you'd like to look particularly in chapter number 5, you'll observe some of the developments that happened. And at that banquet, the king was ready to ask, Esther, what is your petition? He knew that just asking for a meal with both he and Haman was not her request. You wouldn't risk your life just for that. And yet, at this particular banquet now, she asked, My petition is this, will you and Haman enjoy tomorrow a banquet, a feast with me? You can imagine the excitement that filled Haman's heart. Of all the men in the empire, only he was invited by the queen to enjoy a meal with the king. Only he. If I may, in fact, paraphrase some of his responses. He left that banquet that day, and he went home, and he told his wife, I was able to enjoy a meal with the king and queen, and nobody was there but me. In fact, he called all of his friends together, and he told them about his money, and he told them about his wealth. And he told them about his position, and he told them about his glory. Are you getting the idea Haman was a bit egotistical? Are you getting the idea that he loved the fame and notoriety for himself? That's certainly the impression that we have. One little detail that you and I might know. As he left that banquet and went home, one of the things to observe and observe and note is this. Along the way, he happened to see Mordecai. And one more time, Mordecai did not bow before him. And Mordecai, in fact, did not show him any reverence. And for that reason, when he came home, he did have a little bit of a sullen disposition. And his wife said, here is an idea. Since you're in such good standing with the king, why don't you go in to see the king and you get his permission to hang Mordecai, kill him. Now keep in mind that there had already been a kingly decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew is to be slain. So what deal would it have been to kill Mordecai just a few months early? At this point, things get very interesting. We now come to chapter 6. On that very night, the king couldn't sleep. We aren't told why. He just had a restless night. And in the midst of his sleeplessness, he called an attendant to bring the chronicles of the kingdom before him and to read from those chronicles. And interestingly enough, in the reading was a statement about an act of service that Mordecai had rendered to the king. Sometime earlier, there had been a plot on the part of some of the king's servants to take his life. In other words, some of his servants were making a conspiracy against him. Mordecai learned about it, made it known, and ultimately saved the king's life. You may want to hold that in mind. It's going to be helpful. As the attendant read about that, the king said, What has been done to honor this man? The servant said nothing. At that point, you may wonder who was standing at the door. 
It seems morning had now come, and Haman had appeared early at the king's gate, ready to get permission to hang Mordecai on a gallows 75 feet high that he had had constructed overnight. 75 feet high is a tall gallows. I fully expect that his workers perhaps labored most of the night to get that ready. And the morning came, and he no doubt with excitement was prepared to enter before the king and obtain permission to kill the very man who had been so disrespectful, he thought, to him. When he appeared before the king that morning, the king again said, Who's at the door? And the attendants said, Haman is. The king said, Bring him in. And the king asked this question, Haman, what ought to be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman thought, sure, he was talking about him. Of all people in the kingdom, surely I'm the one that the king wants to honor. Surely I'm the one that the king would wish to especially honor in in light before the people. And so Haman gave this wonderful answer. Here's what needs to be done. Bring your kingly garments and put on him and have an attendant lead him through the city with the crown on his head and arrayed in full kingly raiment. The king thought that was a grand idea. And thus the king said, Haman, make it so. You go and make sure that Mordecai is honored just as you have said and you lead him through the city. Can you imagine the countenance falling so quickly in Haman? thinking surely that the entire reference was to him when all the while he is the one that's going to have to, in fact, be a part of the procession to honor the man he so hated. At that point, he led Mordecai all throughout that city. And as you notice, when all of that ended, he went back to his house with countenance greatly fallen, and he had another meeting with his wife. And he pointed out that I have been the one whom the king has asked and the one who is a part in the honoring of Mordecai. His wife answered this, If you have been the one involved in honoring him, if he is the one being elevated and at his disposition and at his feet you have fallen, you are now going to be completely fallen. And now the scene gets more interesting in the following way. Remember that Esther had requested that he come to another banquet together with the king. And so at that point, the attendants from the king arrive and say, Esther's banquet is ready. And so off he goes to enjoy this banquet. But it was not to be an enjoyable time. You and I remember that the king one more time had said, Esther, what is your request? She still hadn't told him. But the time had come. She said, King, my people are under threat. And that includes me. There is a force in the empire, and it is working in such a way to bring about our utter destruction. The king became furious. Who would do this to my queen? Who, in fact, is it, he said, who is it that is operating in this way against you? And she said, It's Haman, the other person that was there. This is the wicked man who, in fact, has put in place this edict, this decree, that is not only going to bring about my destruction, but that of all of my people. The king, it seems, was sufficiently angry 
that he had to walk outside into the gardens to gather his thoughts. And he came back in and found Haman groveling before Esther, begging for his life. At that point, one of the servants said, He has constructed a gallows, and the king said, Hang him. And so it was. And the very one thus who had seen in such this interesting plan to bring about the destruction, he himself was killed on the same gallows that he intended to kill Mordecai on. And of course, after his death, we now come to chapters 8 and following. And in those chapters, we quickly learn the king gave Mordecai the position that Haman formerly had occupied. And not only that, we now learn that that terrible plan was averted like this. Remember, once the decree was made, it could not be changed. But the king allowed Mordecai to put in place another plan. I will give the Jews the opportunity to defend themselves with government approval. And not only did they defend themselves with government assistance, but they in fact slew a large number of their own enemies that day. God's people were stronger after this event than they had been before. Didn't God have a great salvation for them? Didn't He bring about a tremendous deliverance? You'll notice as you come near the close of that slide, in that elevation... It then brings us to ask a few interesting questions. Questions which speak so greatly about the providence of God. Let me, in fact, direct you to note a few of them. First of all, you'll notice about the middle of that slide. How did it come to pass that on the second occasion when Esther appeared before the king, he one more time dipped the scepter to her twice in this book? And yet he did it. If either time he had killed Esther, the whole scenario would have been very different. But not only that, look at another possibility. You'll notice that after Haman's death, the king chose to put Mordecai into the position of prime minister, allowing him the opportunity and the authority to make a plan to help save the people. What if he had chosen someone other than Mordecai to replace Haman? things could have been very different. Go back further into the record of our book that we've studied tonight. How was Mordecai even alive at this time? Wasn't it true Haman intended to kill him the next day? Don't you find it remarkable to consider that chain of events? He arrived at the king's house, the king's palace, just after the attendant had read in the Chronicles, it would seem, in which Mordecai himself had been mentioned. If Haman had arrived 30 minutes earlier, maybe there would have been no reading yet about Mordecai. The king would have not had any reason to honor him, and he might have given full approval to killing Mordecai. Haman arrived at just the right time. Was it accidental? And furthermore, how was it the king happened to have a sleepless night? What caused him to have that sleepless night? Had he eaten too much for supper? Did he have perhaps a sinus headache? Was it matters of the empire were weighing heavily upon his mind? We don't know what it was. But could we at least ponder this? If he had not had the sleepless night, then the chronicles of the kingdom would not have been read. 
the record of Mordecai's service would not have been made known to him, and he would not have had reason to honor him the way he did. But look at another consideration. When that night he asked for the chronicles of the kingdom to be read, have you ever given thought to how many years he had been king? It was in his twelfth year that that took place. How many volumes of books likely would there have been? How did the attendant choose that volume to read? And in that volume, how did he choose the particular set of pages on which Mordecai's service was noted? Was all of that accidental? Was it a happenstance? Too many factors, it would seem, worked together to make God's providence evident. And all of it led to the salvation of His people. Their deliverance from the wicked plot of Haman. Esther, of course, was a part of it, so why don't we go back even further? How did she become queen? We remember as the book began, another person named Vashti was queen. How did she end up losing the queenship? We will remember. The king gave order one day that, in fact, she was to appear before him, and he had been drinking, and he ordered that she appear in a way that was immodest to her. Have you ever thought that the desire to appear ladylike and the desire to appear modest led to her being deposed, Esther being selected, and she could thus occupy a position of delivering her people? It's very interesting to consider, isn't it? All the while, it's fair to say, we see God's handiwork and His orchestration through all of it. The events of people's lives. Our God is powerful enough and loving enough to orchestrate those events into a way that allows opportunities and a way that can be used to bring about great service to Him. The story of the book of Esther is certainly a remarkable one. Could we close our lesson tonight with a briefer record? The one found in 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 9. We studied at least some of the details of this on Sunday morning a number of weeks ago. But at that time, we at least did not mention them under the same heading that we are now. I hope that we'll be again reminded of how beautiful the thought is that we're about to see. You remember the people of Israel had begged and demanded that a king be given to them. And Samuel, of course, was hesitant, but yet God said, Give them a king. They've rejected me. 1 Samuel 8, verses 5 and 20. And yet, as you and I remember, as chapter 9 opens, we are led to appreciate that there was a man named Kish who was the father of Saul. And he had some donkeys. But the donkeys had gotten loose. The donkeys were not where they should have been. May I suggest that maybe each of us are at least aware that when an animal gets out of its fence, obviously you go to find it. Most of the time, they're next door, they're in a neighbor's plot, or they're across the road, or at least they're not too far away. Have you ever thought about how far these donkeys had traveled? When Kish's donkeys got free, I've asked you to notice... The wording of chapter 9 mentions a number of cities and lands and places through which Saul and his servant went to find them. These donkeys had traveled over 20, over 20 miles. They had traveled over 20 miles from their home. In light of all of that, you'll notice that ultimately Saul and his servant became a bit 
discouraged. They had not found them even yet. And interestingly enough, the servant suggests an idea. They had come to a place, and he knew that Samuel was there. He suggested, let's go and ask Samuel if he can assist us in his great capability to find where these donkeys are. Sure enough, they went. God had told Samuel the previous day, the person to be the first king of Israel, I'm going to send to you tomorrow. Do you already see who led those donkeys for the 20 miles? They didn't just travel that distance in happenstance. They didn't just travel there for no reason. They were motivated there, and you'll notice Saul had followed them. And that very next day when he met Samuel, God said, He's the one. God orchestrated that event. He moved the donkeys to travel that distance and that right placement in that direction. Perhaps in summary to that idea, could we not say that just as surely as we saw God's handiwork in the record of Joseph and we saw it in the record of Esther, we also see it rather briefly in the record of Saul as the first king. To summarize all of these things and perhaps bring the two lessons today to a bit of a conclusion, isn't it fair to say that the providence of God, which again refers to His provision, is a remarkable and thrilling theme. It's one that challenges us to appreciate His loving direction and the way in which He brings about events. Often they're ordinary matters of the day, but ultimately, in hindsight, we can often see His handiwork in all of it. Maybe in your life you can think back on events wherein, in hindsight, you are in a far better place because of events that took place then. Those were not accidental, necessarily, but the work of God on your behalf. As we close this lesson tonight, could we not borrow one more time that beautiful passage in Romans 8.28? We know that all things work together for good to them who are called according to His purpose. When you and I think about a passage like that one, it motivates us to appreciate we have a loving Heavenly Father who is interested in our well-being and who can move matters in your life and mind so that that well-being is appreciated and experienced. Tonight it could be in this audience, in this assembly, that there's one or more who maybe have lost sight of faithfulness. You no longer live in the way that you know the Lord would wish you to, and for that reason maybe you can think of instances wherein influences were brought before you, influences for good, and you neglected them. You ignored them, but all the while God was trying to get your attention. Might you and I in wisdom, and might you and I with deliberate character be thankful for a God that loves us enough to reach out to us and to strive to bring us to Him through the power of His Word. Tonight that Word tells us what we need to do to be a faithful child of the King. If you have become a Christian, but as of tonight you're unfaithful, why not make some changes? God will support you and strengthen you and help you, but you need to make a decision to labor on His behalf. Tonight, if we could help you in that way, confess those errors and sins, make repentance of them, and He's promised to forgive. But if you have never become a Christian to begin with, why not tonight? The waters behind me are prepared and ready. Everything in a matter of minutes 
is such that you could leave this structure this evening faithful to the Lord and proudly able to wear the name Christian. If we could help you in that way tonight, you need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could assist in that way, how delighted we indeed would be. If we can be of help, won't you let us know how we can while together we stand and while we sing.